If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. It, in many ways, teaching of writers on civility overlapped with the teaching of the clergy. I mean, when you think of some of the qualities which were associated with civility in this period, they include benevolence, compassion, courtesy, decency, honesty, modesty, neighborliness. All these might you might have heard in a sermon on Sundays. So, in principle, they ought to have been a pretty close fit between the two. But of course, it didn't work out that way. That was Keith Thomas discussing the history of manners. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's interview is with the renowned historian Sir Keith Thomas, who's an honorary fellow at All Souls College, Oxford. He's just released a new book entitled In Pursuit of Civility, which explores the concept of civilised behaviour in early modern England. Our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn, met up with Sir Keith recently to find out more. So today I'm at All Souls College, Oxford, with historian Sir Keith Thomas. Sir Keith's most recent book is In Pursuit of Civility, Manners and Civilization in Early Modern England. So to kick us off, I wonder whether you could just um, tell listeners a little bit about the topics that you tackle in the book and why you wanted to write it. Well, let me answer the second question first. Uh, On and off throughout my um, career, I've been interested in what you might call an anthropology or ethnography of early modern England. I happen to be Welsh myself, so I've always viewed the English as a foreign people and am curious about their values and customs and beliefs. And I've written earlier books on religion and magic, on attitudes of the natural world, on what people thought life was about. So I've turned now to manners in civilization because they are very revealing of what people's ultimate values were, what they thought social relationships ought to be, and what they thought was the ideal way of life. Before we go any further, I wonder if you could just clarify for us what exactly we're talking about when we use the terms 
um, civility, civilization, and being civilized, inverted commas, um, in, from the 16th to the 18th century? I think one needs to remember that the tendency to divide the world up into people who are civil and people who are barbarous goes back to classical, classical antiquity. Uh, the Greeks thought anyone who didn't speak Greek was a barbarian, and the Romans thought that those who were not within the Roman Empire were barbarians. And this distinction carries through into the early modern period when it's perfectly normal for people to view the world as made up of the civil or civilized and the more or less barbarous. So what did they mean by civility, by being civil? Well, part of the trouble is that uh, civility had a number of different meanings at the time, and we need to separate them out. But they do all relate to, uh, in one way or another, to the existence of a well-ordered political community. Originally a city-state, but by the 16th century, any form of what they called civil society. So civility can mean an orderly system of government, but it also means the qualities which and the forms of behaviour which the good citizens ought to uh, demonstrate. So we get these two different meanings. On the one hand, uh, Tudor writers could speak about bringing the Irish, say, trying to bring the Irish to civility, by which they meant really what we would call a civilised way of living. But we also get schoolmasters or parents trying to teach their children civility, meaning what we would call good manners. So there are these two different notions of civility as a civilised form of existence and civility as polite behaviour. Could you give us a sense of how important these ideas were to um, English society at the time, um, the levels to which they pervaded? Well, people were much more explicit about it than they are today. Books today are still written about manners and how to behave, but they're not central to people's lives in the way that they were in the 16th century. The schools gave enormous amount of attention to teaching manners. Indeed, John Locke, the philosopher, thought that was the primary purpose of education, to teach manners. And people who founded grammar schools in the 17th century said the first thing is to teach manners, and the Latin and all that can come afterwards, but is less important. The upper classes were obsessed by the need to demonstrate their superior civility. And the notion of politeness emerged, not just in the narrow sense of um, good manners, but being a whole way of life, really. Politeness uh, for the uh, aristocracy, the gentry, politeness meant a cultured way of living, certainly very mannered and um, uh, very much concerned with knowing how to behave in polite society, but also extending to matters of taste, connoisseurship, foreign languages, and so on. It was a whole way of life. And this was quite central to the self-definition of the upper classes in the 18th century. 
One of the central issues um, that you discuss in the book, as you mentioned earlier, was this idea of civilization and how it tied into ideas such as colonialism, slavery. How did this idea shape the relationship between Western Europe and the rest of the world? Well, it was crucial. The rest of the world, of course, was not thought uniformly barbarous. Um, there was considerable respect for the great empires of India and China, and when they discovered it, uh, Japan. But all the Native Americans and most of the Africans, and when in the 18th century they got there, the inhabitants of the South Sea were all seen as uncivilized and more or less barbarous. Now, once you defined uh, people as barbarous, a lot of very unpleasant consequences followed because in Europe, and particularly Western Europe, they had, for example, the laws of war had developed very considerably in the early modern period. And it was very uncivil, for example, to molest the civilian population or to kill prisoners of war. But these rules, the laws of war, were totally suspended uh, when they encountered um, the North American Indians, or indeed, to some extent, the Irish, whom they thought, the Gaelic Irish, they thought were barbarous. So they were subject to a different set of rules. It also meant that since they, they thought that only civilized people uh, deserved independent recognition as states. This went right through to the 19th century. In the 19th century, the interne European international lawyers defined what they called a standard of civilization, which other countries had to meet if they were to qualify for membership of the international community. And if they didn't qualify, you could do almost anything to them. And this standard of civilization was about the rule of law and honoring contracts and so on, Western ideas as to how people should behave. So the treatment of the barbarous was always on the harsh side. And it was crucial, for example, for slavery. Slavery was justified on the grounds that the Africans, largely, who were made slaves, were barbarous that they could only benefit from being brought to the plantations, which were relatively, so they thought, a more civilized society. And many of the defenders of, of slavery said, yes, I know it's all rather terrible for them, but actually they are slowly being civilized. And when they are civilized, of course, we they won't be slaves anymore. So would it be too cynical to say that this was used in a self-aware way as a justification for exploitation and slavery and colonialism? Um, I think not, uh, not quite. It wasn't, I think, done cynically at all. It was done quite sincerely. You see, it was believed, for example, that by the law of nature, there was a lot of talk about the law of nature, which is the idea of a law which any ordinary person could see by looking into his or her own hearts. By the law of nature, for example, People who occupied territory ought to cultivate it. They ought to practice agriculture. So when the early explorers, travelers, colonists encountered, say, the Native Americans, they found that they had very little agriculture and they hunted over lands, but they didn't actually turn over the sods. They didn't 
till the soil. And the theory was that if people occupied land without cultivating it, they were not entitled to own it. And that people who came along and said, took over the land and cultivated it, were. And that was because God had intended that the, that the land should be used. So, I mean, that was done quite sincerely. I mean, it certainly worked to their advantage, but that's not why they said it, I think. One of the key things that you discuss in the book is what you call um, the invention of race. I wonder whether you could just explain a little bit about that for us. Well, the accepted doctrine in, say, 1500 was that the human race was just that. It was a single race, uh, all descended from Adam and Eve. And it is only only a few sceptics put forward the notion of polygenism, as they call it. That's to say that there are, the human race has a number of different ancestors. That was a very heretical, atheistical sort of thing to say. So the, although people recognized that there were great cultural differences between the people of North America and the people of England, they nevertheless usually did not deny that they were just as human. And many people thought that it was just the lack of education and opportunity which prevented them from being as civilized as they were. The invention of race is a development of the idea that 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 racial differences were intrinsic rather than just the product of environment or lack of education or the climate. They thought the climate had a lot to do with how people behaved. And it is only in the later 17th century that a few people express the notion, though they virtually never do it in print, that that the world consists of people of different races who are ethnically distinct and who have um, qualities which are peculiar to that race alone, so that when this develop, this idea um, becomes a little more general in the 18th century, for example, in the writings of the great philosopher David Hume, it takes the form of saying that actually black people have never been civilized and are not really capable of it. And that was a big jump to say they were intrinsically not capable of it as opposed to saying, well, they haven't got it yet, but in the right circumstances, of course, they will. Today, in 2018, the term civilization is still very, is very loaded and very contentious. Why do you think that it still is such a difficult term to grapple with? Well, the word civilization came into use in the early modern, modern period. Initially, it meant teaching civility to the barbarous. You civilize them by making them civil. And by making them civil, they meant uh, that they ceased to be disorderly and violent, they became law-abiding, they became nicer to each other, and so forth. But civilization at that stage was a word for a process, the process of making people civil. The notion, the notion of civilization is not the process, 
But the result of the process, that is to say a state or a condition, is something which, is, which emerges in the 18th century. Now, and so by the later 18th century, people can talk of civilization as if it is a condition of some particular society. They're civilized, there is a British civilization. Today, at the moment, particularly when the BBC has these programs on civilization, there's much discussion as what is civilization. There is absolutely no future in that discussion, in my view, because civilization was used from the beginning. It's a purely rhetorical term. Civilization means the state of human society, which I happen to think is how it should be. So the criteria for civilization change steadily over the centuries. Initially, the emphasis is very much on having a proper organized state with people obeying the law, where they don't take the law into their own hands, where murder is treated as an offense against the state rather than against the kin who must set about avenging it. And uh, the formation of an effective state with a monopoly of violence, that is the starting point of what in these years they called civilization. But of course it develops out from that um, it mean, there's an international development to it, that is to say, respecting the rights of ambassadors or the laws of war. That is something which is incumbent upon all civil peoples. Uh, it um, then extends into greater humanity, compassion in, for example, the uh, criminal laws, the punishments, which in the 18th century, the most horrific of the punishments uh, hanging, drawing, and quartering, or whatever, disemboweling people alive, uh, fade out of the English criminal law, and uh, executions become much less frequent. Um, transportation and prison, which you may think is not that much more humane, but still is different, um, take to great extent take the place of of, of capital punishment. Um, so that's another feature of civilization which people in the 18th century patted themselves on the back about. They were more compassionate, they thought, than people in previous ages. So compassion and humanity uh, becomes a feature. But so does the progress of what they call the arts and sciences, of technology, and of course of the economy. People can go on adding to it. So every day you can hear people say, test of civilization is um, how they treat the poor. That's what Dr. Johnson thought. Or the test of um, civilization is how we treat immigrants. Or anything becomes a test of civilization according to what your uh, other political and social and moral principles are. The other strand of your book looks at manners and courteous behavior. Um, I wonder if you could tell us some of the forms that this took in early modern England. Can you give us some examples of uh, the types of behaviours that developed in this period, some of which we might recognise today and some of which might be totally alien to us now? Well, manners meant different things according to who you were. And the upper classes set great store on developing manners and ways of behaving which they did not even want to be emulated by those below them because they were a sign 
of their social, social superiority. So a polite person in the 18th century, the word polite, was somebody, for example, who knew how to enter a room, how to doff his hat, what to do with his hat when he doffed it, and how to converse in an elegant, amusing way, and how to retire from the company, how to, how to get in, how to get out. Um, table manners developed so that whereas in the 16th century, all people had was a knife which they carried around with them, the fork came in and due course a whole plethora of cutlery and table manners got a great deal more complicated and by the 18th century, carving meat was a very important gentleman's accomplishment. And uh, if you couldn't do that, then you really were not a gentleman. Um, the way bodily comportment, the way you carried yourself, your posture, that was thought to be an instant way of recognizing who was who, because it was rather assumed that the common people were all sort of lumpish and awkward. Whereas the young nobleman, you could see across the room uh, by the way he carried himself, by the way he spoke, the way he moved, the way he put his legs, um, that he was something rather superior. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. So who did these manners serve? Did they essentially um, serve to reinforce social hierarchies? Manners, in this sense of the word, began really as forms of deference to the ruler, the king, or to your local lord. It was important that you should show deference by whatever the accepted um, idiom was, uh, bowing or kneeling or kissing a hand or taking your hat off or whatever it might be. And the story of the early modern period in this respect, I think, is how manners extend out from being just a way of acknowledging the supremacy of your rulers and lords and employers to affecting your relations with all people at all social levels. Now, that didn't mean you treated them all, you expected to treat them all equally. The stock idea was that to your superiors, you were deferential and respectful. To your equals, you were frank and um, uh, hail well met and so on. And to your inferiors, you were condescending in a sort of decent kind of way. 
The curious thing about that, of course, was it assumed everybody knew exactly who their superiors were, who their equals were, and who their inferiors were. Uh, were. And one of the ways, all the, one of the reasons all this has um, not entirely disappeared but diminished is that when we walk down the street, we are by no means clear whether we are passing our inferiors or our superiors. Because, and this is one of the other changes in this period, that whereas at the beginning of the period, uh, social distinctions were very visible in terms of uh, dress and the uh, number of people f following you and so on, whereas the late, in the, by the late 18th century, even the peerage uh, were dressing down, they no longer wore the garter on their, on their chest, um, they wore um, great coats, overcoats, which were really a rather working class um, uh, uniform, and trousers above all. When they moved to trousers, that was very lower class thing, the trousers. So, so the English aristocracy develop, uh, developed um, by comparison with the continent in an extremely um, inf informal manner. Um, and in the big cities, when you past people in the street, they're already in 18th century London, they were completely anonymous. So that there was a great contrast between life in the city and life in the countryside where everybody knew their place. Something I found really interesting in the book was um, the relationship between manners and religion. And you suggest that they didn't always go hand in hand and often could be in conflict to one another. Yes, in principle, uh, they should have pointed, both pointed in conduct in the same direction. It, the early theorists of civility said that good behaviour, good bodily comportment, good manners expressed the healthy condition of your soul. The body simply reflected what was going on inside. But, uh, and indeed in many ways, the teaching of writers on civility overlapped with the teaching of the clergy. I mean, when you think of some of the qualities which were associated with civility in this period, they include benevolence, compassion, courtesy, decency, honesty, modesty, neighborliness. All these might, you might have heard in a sermon on, on Sundays. So in principle, they ought to have been a pretty close fit between the two. But of course, it didn't work out that way. Um, the problem started really with the godly um, Puritans who were extremely aware that civility required you to be courteous and polite and friendly to very sinful people. And it also required you to put manners before their spiritual health, for example, if, you, if somebody fell asleep in church, which they often did because the sermons went on so long, to wake them up was a very good thing because they ought to be listening to the sermon, but it was very bad manners because you shouldn't be interfering with that. So there were little conflicts like that, but the big conflict was that people became aware, or probably were always aware, that being polite to somebody involved simulation pretending to th feel things you didn't. What did you think of my book? Jolly good. Uh, and or dissimulating, concealing the um, hostility you felt to people to whom you were sucking up, really, 
in the hope of advancement. So there was a real moral conflict in the eyes of many people between the demands of uh, civility and good manners on the one hand and the demands of morality and religion on the other. The question of dissimulation bothered a lot of 18th century philosophers, including the um, uh, famous continental philosopher, Immanuel Kant, who spent ages agonizing as to whether it was immoral to uh, tell your servant to say that you were not at home or to um, uh, sign a letter yours faithfully when you weren't really very faithful. Uh, and, but the consensus which emerged, which I think is probably still the position today, is that benevolence sh should take priority over truthfulness. So that if somebody says, what did you think of my book? You find some way without being too effusive of being at least polite and civil about it and saying, nice to see it. I shall lose no time in reading it or, or whatever. How did all of this tie into gender as well? Because um, you suggest that many people in England, at least, uh, were slightly antagonistic towards the idea of continental um, feminized manners. They were certainly uh, resistant to Italian and French manners, and the Italians and the French were the real architects of civility because they thought they effeminized men in the sense uh, that they made them quite unsuitable, I mean, they're quite unsuitable for sort of military purse and so on, that they were at home in a drawing room. It was, it was generally agreed that the company of ladies was a very important civilizing force and that you couldn't really be civilized unless you were at home in such company. And they regarded that, that kind of, I mean, spending a lot of time with women, you would go all soft in no time at all is what they thought. The more obvious, I suppose, gender dimension of it all is that the rules of civility for women were distinctly different from those for men. Uh, women were expected to be, well, first of all, they were allowed to indulge their emotions in a way men were not. I mean, one of the key features of, of civility is self-control control of the emotions, so that it was a very bad thing normally for a gentleman to laugh at lo out loud or to weep in public. Whereas um, for women to weep, that was just thought sort of natural to them. And so they were, uh, they were thought to be uh, sort of um, less, to have less self-discipline. And of course, they were also taught to be um, submissive, uh, huge emphasis was set upon chastity. Uh, needless to say, many women totally disregarded all, all these injunctions. Something that I find really interesting about all of this is how it impacted everyday personal relationships. So you, you talk about relationships between parents and children. Um, do you think that the introduction of all these uh, formalised behaviours led to, was a, was a, um, a barrier to mm. intimacy? in normal relationships? No, not at all. Um, uh, curiously, I mean, the 16th century, 17th, 16th, 17th century were periods of intense friendship between men, not necessarily homosexual friendships, but very close friendships. Um, and people 
were quite explicit about that, and there was a great cult of friendship. Similarly, friendships between women. Uh, that was regarded as a sort of ideal to which you should aspire. Everybody needed an intimate friend. Um, on the other hand, uh, if once you were an intimate friend, formality was largely cast aside, and John Locke says in one of his letters to one of his friends that we are past the stage of polite courtesies. We don't, you know, just as today, you don't need to shake hands with your friend every day unless you're in France. Within the family, the relationships between parents and children were, in general, a great deal more formal than they are today, much more formal. Um, I mean, a good child was expected to um, bow to his parents in morning and night, and the uh, father was expected to put his hand on his head and give them a blessing. And it's not quite clear where this notion, where, where this practice of a parental blessing, when it died out, it's still there in the 18th century, early 18th century, but not, I think, much longer than that. That's rather obscure. So the story is of gradual informality. Um, Lord Clarendon, the royalist historian of the Civil War, the Great Rebellion, as he called it, thought that the Civil War and its aftermath, the uh, Commonwealth and Protectorate, had um, been a very bad time for manners, which had all got very loose indeed, and that discipline within the, uh, within the family had all gone. And um, he saw that as under threat. And I think it probably is the case that they were loosening up afterwards. At the end of the book, you reflect on the relevance of all of this today and suggest that um, the lack of traditional courtesies in modern society that we have now is not necessarily evidence of a, um, a decivilizing process, but more of an informalization. Could you perhaps um, explain a little bit what you mean about that? It is certainly true that uh, bowing and scraping has gone out. And it's also true that there is much greater equality between the generations and, of course, between the sexes. Lots of things are tolerated today which would not at all have been tolerated in the early period, but they don't mean that we've relapsed into some kind of barbarism. On the other hand, I think that civility, in the sense of respect for other people, benevolence, thinking about other people, putting other people before yourself, that is as important as ever. And it's not something which, of course, is enforced by the law. There are all sorts of obvious bad behaviour today. I don't know, cycling on the, on, the, on the pavement, queue jumping or whatever. Now, in Israel, in the late 1990s, somebody actually tried to bring in a law against queue jumping, but of course it, it wasn't passed. And the role of manners today is to fill the gaps which the laws have left. I mean, the law, to, uh, the, there's no law against pushing and shoving in, in a queue or, or, or jumping the queue or shouting loudly at somebody, insulting them even. Um, and that is where manners come in. Manners or civility is essentially about 
how can people live together in large communities, um, particularly live with strangers? You can arrive at some sort of discipline within the family, but how do you manage to get by each day when encountering people you've never met before and never, will never see again? This is where ordinary manners and courtesy come in. And the world wouldn't go around if it didn't exist, if they didn't exist. And there are certain areas where it's perhaps more, civility is more important um, than it used to be. In recent years, and particularly in the United States, there's been a lot of talk about civility. And by civility, they mean the ability to um, conduct arguments between people of different ethnic, religious, social character without coming to blows. And that, um, how can you, Barack Obama said, um, the important thing is to be able to disagree without being disagreeable. And civility is just that, civility, and it began in the early modern period when they, for example, allowed there to be a loyal opposition to the government. I mean, that would be inconceivable in the 17th century, but there it is in doing the 18th century, that you can genuinely disagree with people and but conduct what we would call a civilised debate, that's to say, without starting to lash out and hit the other person. And that ability today, when we live in a multiracial society, multi-ethnic society, different religions, all sorts of values, conflicting in many ways, at that point, civility becomes the essential form of social cement for keeping the show on the road. That was Sir Keith Thomas. In Pursuit of Civility, Manners and Civilization in Early Modern England is out now, published by Yale University Press. And you can read a version of this interview in the July issue of BBC History magazine which is now on sale. Also in this month's edition, you'll find articles on Viking warriors, the Bayer Tapestry, the Gunpowder Plot and the birth of the NHS. Look out for it in all good retailers now. And before we go, I'd like to remind you about the poll that we're currently running on our website to discover who you think are the women that have had the biggest impact on history. There's still time to cast your votes, so please head to historyextra.com forward slash 100 women to take part. And that's about it for today's episode. But we'll be back on Thursday when Sarah Jackson will be reflecting on how historical women are commemorated today. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook? where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 